Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If I was to ask you, what do you think about the Iraq war in Alaska? You might give me a bit of a strange look. Probably similar to the look that I had on my face when I first read about this slice of history, but... That confusion soon turned to one of shock when I learned about how, despite long-held local protests and previous restrictions, the US Department of Defense controversially reopened Eagle River Flats, an Alaskan estuary that had been historically polluted with white phosphorus munitions, and they reopened this for weapons testing and training during the Iraq War. So from 2003, the impact of the war in Iraq wasn't just felt in Iraq or in the homes and minds and bodies of those who served, but in places you would never imagine the force of war to be felt. To tell you all about this fascinating period of history, we have the researcher who pioneered this study on the podcast, Dr. Matthew Leap. Matthew helps us to understand the broader impact of war, well outside the regions of declared conflict, and how war also has impacted animal life, plant life, and a whole range of flora and fauna up in Alaska. So here is Matthew Leap on the Iraq War in Alaska. Enjoy. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me on the show today. Not a problem at all. I mean, I saw the title of an article by you that had the term Iraq War in Alaska in it. And I had to read it. I had to go through and understand what on earth you mean by the Iraq War in Alaska. Because when we think about the costs and the impact of war... We focus in on the region of conflict itself. So if we talk about the Iraq War, then we think, of course, 2003. We think of post-9-11. We think of the War on Terror and how Saddam was embroiled in this axis of evil alongside Osama bin Laden at this period of time. Now, of course, we know that all of these were tangential, if not make-believe, links that were made up to justify the war in Iraq. But either way, when we look into that conflict, we think about Allied forces being deployed en masse. We think about the fall of Baghdad, the toppling of statues, and then the horrendous humanitarian situation that follows with the natural impact of war, which is disease, famine, food access issues, and everything else in terms of the usual traditional ideas of how war impacts humanity, standard of living, and human life. 
So what on earth has this got to do with Alaska, Matt? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So as you kind of put it, when we typically think of wars, we think of war in terms of this kind of spatio-temporal boundedness. So for instance, the Iraq war is looked at as a set of events involving the U.S. military, British military using force in Iraq during a particular time period, for example, 2003 to 2011. But from my perspective, the time of war extends before and beyond that particular time period. It also extends beyond the spatial boundaries of Iraq. So in the paper that I wrote, I look at the Iraq war in terms of multiple processes that extend across space and time. So for instance, I'm looking at weapons testing processes, training processes in Alaska as a constituent component of what the Iraq war is and what it means. So the question of what war is, for example, is inclusive of those weapons testing and weapons training processes. And this is important because, you know, there's physical and emotional effects on human and non-human life outside of the Iraq war in places like Alaska. So Alaska has been you know, central for decades and decades for training U.S. soldiers and testing weapons. And so in the paper, I look at how some of the weapons testing practices affect non-human life, specifically bird life in Alaska. So yeah, rather than just looking at the effects of war and the decisions about war in Iraq, I'm looking at the politics outside of Iraq that are deeply connected and entangled with the Iraq war. So this is a broadening and widening of our understanding of, of what war is and where war is, especially when it comes to the Iraq war. So tell us a little bit about this weapons testing that happens up in Alaska, because it's it's not something that I know too much about. I guess... That's probably the point. I suppose the idea is you push this out of sight and out of mind to these regions of the world that we deem to be, you know, quite sparse, less populated, gigantic, more barren places. We know that they are not that. Alaska is a hub of flora and fauna that are vital to the globe. But uh, tell us a little bit about the history of this munitions testing up in Alaska. Yeah, so the history of the munitions testing really begins in the 1940s. So for your listeners, Alaska becomes part of the United States in 1867. There's a treaty between the United States and Russia. U.S. purchases Alaska for $7.2 million. In today's dollars, it's quite a bit more, especially with inflation. And so even at that time, Alaska was seen as this potential territory for U.S. strategic power in the Pacific. But it wasn't until, I guess, mid-1930s, late-1930s, that you have a number of U.S. politicians and military officials looking at Alaska as a potential resource for the United States military, and also looking at Alaska as vulnerable to foreign powers. So in the 1930s, there was growing concern that the Japanese military would look at Alaska as a strategic resource and potentially take over Alaska. And they did try. They did. During the Second World War. They did try. So, I mean, you, we actually had war between the United States and Japan in the early 1940s. I think it's like 1942, Japan actually occupies parts of Alaska in the Aleutian Islands, a couple of small islands, Atu and Kiska. And so there had been this growing fear that Japan would try to appropriate Alaska. And during World War II, you have outright conflict between Japan and the United States, 1942 and 1943. And around that time, you have, or right, right previous to Japan-U.S. conflict in Alaska, you had the United States building up military facilities in the Aleutian Islands. 
So you have the Dutch Harbor Naval Base, you had Fort Mears. So you have the United States begin to develop military facilities and bases. And that's what the Japanese military actually attacks. And post-World War II, you know, as your listeners probably know, you have NSC-68, this policy document put out by the State Department, Paul Nietzsche, arguing for a much more rigorous and robust U.S. military defense and mobilization. So really ramping up U.S. military spending, becoming potentially much more aggressive and powerful in the world post-World War II. And Alaska becomes a kind of central feature to that new understanding of American power in the world. And as you mentioned, there still is this idea of as Alaska is this kind of large, uninhabited space, or at least parts of it. And really, in the aftermath of World War II, that's how policymakers were looking at it, as this expansive territory that could be utilized by the military to, you know, have bombing ranges. And, you know, you have all of this territory to test out weapons, for example. And so you have munitions testing, specifically white phosphorus munitions testing, start to happen in Alaska at Fort Richardson, which is just outside of Anchorage. And white phosphorus, is that a defoliant? White phosphorus is actually uh, an incendiary kind of weapon. Yeah. In World War II, for example, it was used as a kind of weapon that could illuminate targets at night. Okay. White phosphorus really burns brightly. So you can use it to yeah, illuminate targets. So it's an illuminescent. So in the darkness of the battle, you send these up into the sky right. and you can pinpoint your targets and where the enemy forces are. That's exactly it. And there's there's another uh, use for it as well for the military, which is a, as a smoke munition. So it can be used to create smoke screens during the day. Right. Okay. So those are the primary uh, military applications or use of white phosphorus munitions. And, and as some of your listeners, and you probably know too, there can be other uses too. It can be used as a psychological weapon against enemies. You know, it's kind of famously or notably used in Fallujah by the U.S. military in 2005, potentially harming many Iraqi civilians in the process. So it's been used by militaries, you know, in World War II, and it's still used by militaries today. And what was the purpose of using it in Fallujah? Well, there's some controversy about that. There were some military documents that suggested it was used as a psychological weapon to terrorize enemies and also to flush out insurgents in the city to get them to come out and so they could be uh, targeted by the U.S. military. So to create persistent daylight, is that what you mean? To turn the darkness into light constantly and to, to terrorize people and create that psychological edge? Right. And so white phosphorus has legal and potentially illegal uses by the military. It's kind of a controversial weapon and its legality depends on the context of its use. Because it's a chemical weapon. It's a chemical weapon. Yeah. White phosphorus itself is this waxy, yellowish-white chemical substance, and it, it burns. It burns brightly. Um, if it gets on the skin of somebody, it can burn for hours. It can burn to the bone. So it's a really uh, terrifying substance if it gets on the human body or non-human animal body as well. But because it was used uh, like this, for whatever reason that we want to say it was used, but it was used in Iraq, this is why these testings ramped up, increased around Alaska to make sure these weapons could be used in a strategically effective way by the United States. Yeah, so there's an interesting history about testing white phosphorus in Alaska. So from 1940 to 19, early 1940s to 1990, it had been tested consistently. In the early 1980s, it was seen that a number of people stumbled across all of these 
dead birds, dead ducks, hundreds of them. And so there was growing concern that this had something to do with white phosphorus munitions testing. And so in the late 80s, the U.S. government did a number of tests in this place called Eagle River Flats. So when we think about munitions weapons testing, we're looking at Fort Richardson, which is now J-Bear uh, Joint Fort Richardson, Elmendorf. They, they merged these a military base and an Air Force base in 2005. But essentially, you have this military facility, about 60-some thousand acres outside of Anchorage. And about one-third of that is an estuary, Eagle River Flats estuary, which is home to you know, hundreds of migratory birds. And in the winter, this has been used by the U.S. military to test weapons. And from 1940s to 1990, it was used to test white phosphorus munitions. But that ended in 1990 because it was determined that the cause of mortality of all these dying birds was white phosphorus. So birds ended up ingesting white phosphorus particles and ended up having all sorts of issues, including many, many birds died because of the ingestion of white phosphorus. So Eagle River Flats, as part of that military base, was then deemed a what we call a Superfund site, which the U.S. government categorizes as a, as a place that is in need of remediation and cleanup because it's a toxic environment. So 1990, you begin uh, that process of remediating Eagle River Flats, cleaning up the white phosphorus, which is an incredibly difficult task, in some ways impossible to clean it all up, but they no longer test white phosphorus munitions in Eagle River Flats. That ended in 1990, but the toxic history remains. There's still white phosphorus there. Birds still ingest white phosphorus. So its presence is still there, but they're no longer conducting white phosphorus munitions testing there. Move over Rome, move over Greece. This month on The Ancients, we're heading to the Americas, North, Mezzo and South. Join us every Sunday this August as we explore this area of the world's extraordinary distant past with leading experts. From the rise and fall of Teotihuacan to the mysterious Nazca Lines. A journey through the ancient Americas every Sunday this August on The Ancients from History Hit. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See, okay, but we make this link about the broader impact of the Iraq war in Alaska because the white phosphorus was used in the Iraq war and it was tested up in Alaska and the two weapons tell a longer life story in terms of the impact on the Alaskan environment. It seems like a strange place to test weapons to me, Matt, because Alaska is an incredibly fragile ecosystem that is less touched perhaps than the rest of the world and the Arctic in general is incredibly vulnerable to human-engineered climate change. So is this really about creating the US stamp on Alaska? Is it about creating military communities up there and justifying a reason for the military to be in Alaska and then to build up an entire, I suppose you build families, you build communities, you build towns around all of this. Is this about the US, I suppose you can say, nation building in Alaska? Yeah, I mean, the history of Alaska is a history of the militarization of Alaska. And throughout the decades, you're right, you have these communities, you have an incredibly strong military presence, you have military bases scattered throughout throughout Alaska. And I, I think a, a notable feature of the Iraq war in Alaska was in 2007, the US military wanted to resume year-round weapons testing in Eagle River Flats. So even though in 1990, they stopped testing white phosphorus munitions, they didn't stop other kinds of weapons testing. So they were consistently training soldiers in Eagle River Flats. Eagle River Flats was called or known as an impact area, which is where you test weapons. And so, yeah, weapons have been continually tested there, but they just stopped white phosphorus munitions testing. In 2007, you know, you have certain events happen in Iraq where you want this additional surge of U.S. troops in Iraq. And related to that, they wanted to resume year-round weapons testing in Eagle River Flats. They had been previously testing weapons just in the winter because in the winter, the land and the estuary will ice over. And so there's less of a risk for that white phosphorus that might be in the ground to become disturbed and then to harm bird life. But in 2007, there was an idea, well, we should just open this up for year-round weapons testing because there's a great demand. And this is the view of the military and not all the military, but the general military argument at the time was we have all these soldiers that we need to train to send to Iraq and Afghanistan, and we need them to test weapons here. And so we're gonna open up the estuary for year round weapons testing, which for many people in the local community were very concerned that this would cause potential harms to uh, human life and non-human life. And so that was the big debate in a lot of the politics during the Iraq war that was occurring in Alaska at the time. Well, let's delve into that a little bit, because what is the impact on human life in Alaska? Has there been an impact? Does this affect indigenous communities in the region? Yeah, so there are a number of tribal nations in Alaska. And in that particular part of Alaska, in and around Anchorage, you have the Upper Cook Inlet tribes, including the Chickaloon tribal nation. And so many tribal nation members have been concerned for a long time about the toxins in and around that land not only with the effects on birds, but, you know, are fish consuming white phosphorus particles, for example, and then the consumption of that fish could harm indigenous communities. 
and ways of living. So there's a sort of connection between human and non-human animal life with regard to the toxins that have built up in that area. But birds who have been infected with this as well, birds travel, it's a migratory point for the global movement of various hundreds of species of birds. It's almost a crucible of bird life and, and non-human ecosystems in the world. So as these birds travel, do they take this infected white phosphorus with them to other parts of the world? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So there's been some disturbing studies about the effects of white phosphorus on birds. So once it became known that many birds were dying because of white phosphorus ingestion, government researchers conducted experiments on birds. So for example, in Maryland, you had government researchers that would collect these eggs from mute swans, raise the swans, and then dose them with white phosphorus to see what kind of effects it would have. Really uh, kind of disturbing. And most of the birds died and, and died from liver dysfunction. And there's been some other researchers in like Dartmouth that had studied the secondary effects of white phosphorus. So for example, would this impact the birds in the eggs? But in terms of birds actually ingesting white phosphorus and moving on and having other effects elsewhere, I'm not quite sure about that. But what we do know is that white phosphorus effects on the birds in Alaska was really harmful and really traumatic because it would lead to birds convulsing. It would lead to birds uh, not being able to use their wings. It would cause confusion among birds. It would lead to loss of appetite. It would lead to the birds drowning. So we do know specifically the harmful effects on the birds in Alaska from the white phosphorus. To play devil's advocate here, Matt, you know, weapons have to be tested somewhere if we believe that nation states need to be defended. And the chances are, you know, as the Arctic now becomes an increasing point of contestation and warms at three or four times the rate of the rest of the world due to climate change, that there's going to be a lot more contestation up in the Arctic and the need for weapons that can be used in cold weather conditions. And so you'll probably end up seeing more weapons testings up there. Is this not surely the best place in the world that they can be tested because it is so remote? Should we care that a few hundred birds die and it affects a small part of the ecosystem? Yeah, that's really the debate that's been kind of ongoing in Alaska between Alaskan community members and certain Alaskan government officials and the U U.S. military. At what cost does the military preparation have? There's that cost-benefit analysis, as you mentioned. You know, in the debates that were unfolding in 2007, you know, many military officials were willing to accept the loss of birds in order to, as they would often put it, save lives of American soldiers, right, who need to train and have proper training. So that's a challenging question, right? That's going to be certainly open to interpretation. And so part of the paper is just, you know, looking at the stakes of that debate and kind of understanding how these debates were unfolding. And, you know, people are going to come to very different conclusions about that particular question. People that are interested in saving bird life and potentially removing any harmful effects on the indigenous communities living nearby would argue that maybe military training and testing should happen in less ecologically sensitive areas. There are many places that weapons testing and training can occur. Maybe there's some better suitable locations that wouldn't be so harmful to non-human life and human life. Well, this isn't the first time that military testing has resulted in the en masse death of thousands of animals. You mentioned in your paper the Dugway incident. Can you take us through that? Yeah, the Dugway incident is really quite interesting. And so imagine for a second if the military was testing chemical weapons to be used in a war and the military inadvertently sprayed an entire community with toxic chemicals, leading to 6,000 people dying, convulsing and dying 
what might we think of that, right? That would be an event we would probably never forget, right? Well, this is exactly what happens in 1968 with sheep. So the U.S. military has tested many different kinds of weapons in Utah. And in one weapons area, they were testing VX weapons along with other chemical weapons during the Vietnam War. And what's a VX weapon, Matt? It's a venomous agent. It's a kind of toxic chemical. And so the U.S. government was testing those weapons and they inadvertently sprayed this entire field in Skull Valley, which was adjacent to this weapons testing area. And sheep were deeply impacted by it. So the VX agent got into the water in the snow. And so sheep that were drinking the water were exposed to it. And about 6,000 sheep died. So it was, it was basically a mass casualty event. But it happened to sheep. And it happened not in a war. It didn't happen in Vietnam. It happened in Utah. But if we think about that happening in war to humans, right, that's certainly a mass casualty event that we would probably never forget. We might even have an anniversary to remember it. But many people who think about war today don't really think about this Dugway event that happened in 1968. So we could almost say about, you could call it the Vietnam War in Utah. Is what we could <laughs> The be Vietnam about. War in Utah, exactly. So we know a lot about the effects of Agent Orange on soldiers and civilians in Vietnam and, and those toxins. But, you know, the preparation and testing of those toxic weapons, chemical weapons, had effects in Utah as well. So is the reason that we should care that thousands of sheep died or thousands of birds die, not so much just because of the animals themselves, although I'll leave it up to our listeners about how they want to decide about that, but is it also the fact that, you know, it's a bit of a litmus test, isn't it? It's a bit of a warning you know, things can go wrong in military testing of really, really potent chemical weapons. And it may well be just a matter of time before it could be 6,000 civilians. I'm, I'm taken back to some of the research that's been done about the impact of overground nuclear weapons testing. And you think about places like Bikini Atoll, but you also look on the continental United States and the impact that that has on different cancers in areas and the fact that people are still living with the very serious repercussions of those weapons testing in those regions, such as Nevada. So is that the bigger warning here? Yeah, the larger concern, I think, is when we think about war, when we're studying war, when we're reading accounts about war, we not only should be thinking about war happening in those specific places abroad, but all that goes into what makes war. So what makes war, war? Should it be inclusive of all these other kinds of events and processes that have toxic and potentially toxic effects Toxic effects that are kind of unknown sometimes and may take a long time to unfold and have their effects. What makes war, war? I think that is a perfect question to end on, Matt. And thank you so much for really, you really have broadened and widened our understanding of what war is through this, this really strange take of the Iraq war in Alaska. You hooked me into it, and hopefully you've hooked our listeners into it as well, and it really does help us understand these broader impacts. Now, tell us, those who are interested in your work, where can we find your writings? Sure. Uh, this particular paper was published by the Review of International Studies, so you can get a copy there. Listeners can always get in contact with me uh, through Twitter or email. I also have a recent book with SUNY Press called Cosmopolitan, Belongingness in War, which is a descriptive account of the different effects that war has on animals in the Iraq war. So you can always go to the Sunni Press website or get a copy of the book on Amazon. And we will put a link to that in our show notes. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me.
thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.